Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 102 for July 26th, 2007. Steve's Mailbag. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. We're going to talk about uh, securing your computer, securing your access Securing your lives, locking things down. Steve Gibson, uh, today is our first mailbag edition, yeah? Yeah, actually, there was one. I got a piece of email that I just loved. Unfortunately, I read it a couple weeks ago, I think, and uh, I don't, I can't give credit to who wrote it because I don't remember where I saw it or, or, or where it was. But it, the, the subject caught my attention. He said, so sorry you won't ever do any mailbag episodes. Huh. I was like, what? Huh. And so, I, so, so he made the very accurate comment that when we refer to mod four episodes, those are our question well, and answer episodes. Exactly. What we're saying is the episode number mod four equals zero. Right. I mean, that's the formal equation. Right. So I've been calling it mod four plus two. Right. So he says, okay, well, episode number mod four plus two will never equal zero. <laughs> it's like, okay. No, he hasn't you know? put the parenthesis in the right uh, place. <laughs> it's paren mod four paren plus two. Well, yeah. It, I mean, he's correct. It ought to really be episode number plus two mod, mod four. four. All right. Yeah, equals zero. So it's like, uh, got me on that one. So <laughs> I, I got a big chuckle out of that. Oh, they are geeks. They are uh, actually, I was I was uh, in the mail I've been reading. I didn't choose this one for for today, but some guy was saying, "Steve, you are such a geek." I was when I grow up, I want to be as geeky as you are. And and then he had a bunch of examples of you know. I mean, actually, I, and and you were sort of lumped in there too, Leo. It's like I am not know. a geek. Not I'm not in your <laughs> class anyway. That's for sure. Nowhere near. Is, is your there a difference? Grade. Is there a difference between geek and nerd? Oh yeah, we're not oh. nerds. A nerd is, uh, well, I mean, I don't know what the technical difference is. You mean like thick glasses, antisocial person? Is you know, that when you talk, uh, you talk about nerds on site, I think they think they're geeks. So I don't know, you know, if we went to Wikipedia, we might find a technical difference. But uh, in my mind, I'll tell you what a difference is between a nerd and a geek. A nerd is like a Star Wars fan, um, the Harry Potter fans who lined up. Those were nerds. Okay, and, and that geeks. includes people who, like, have Captain Kirk costumes. Yeah, and many of them are geeks as well, but okay. not all geeks are nerds. <laughs> oh, so we have a subset, superset situation Yeah, and geeks, geeks I, th- I always think of geeks as more technical, technologically focused. So nerds are fans, okay. sci-fi fans, so forth, but that's just in my head. I don't, you know, I don't think there's any, a geek's a guy who bites the head off chickens. It has nothing to do with technology at all, so I don't really know what the... Okay. <laughs> no, that's the technical derivation of that you know that it is yeah 
Geek means yeah. something actually. Oh, I Those never are knew in that. carny in the carny talk. A geek is a a kind of carny, the the one in particular that comes to uh, bites bites head off chickens. Now let me let me oh. go to uh, Oops, the the definitive geek resource. According to Merriam-Webster, by the way, geeky is one a carnival performer often billed as a wild man whose act usually includes biting the head off a live chicken, bat, or snake. Two. A person often of an intellectual bent who is disliked. Three, an enthusiast or expert, especially in technological field or activity. Oh, good. So okay. it took us three down. It, 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 We're three it down. took us till, till, till the third one to get to us. But, it wasn't uh, negative, but until we took it back. Right? Right. And, and I think that that's the thing is we've taken it back right. and made it something a positive. But I think it was for a long time. He's ah, that geek. Eh. Now, I don't know. I, I have to really see if they have, let's see, see also nerd. <laughs> a stereotypical, archetypal, and frequently used informally as a derogatory designation refers to somebody who passionately pursues intellectual or esoteric knowledge or pastimes rather than engaging in social life. So you see, there is a difference. Yes, there absolutely <clears throat> is. And you're right. It, it, it is the, the sort of the over-the-top fanatical, um, you know, fan person. Yeah. It certainly fits in that. A nerd yeah. is often excluded from physical activity and is also considered a loner or often considered a loner by peers. Okay. Dr. Oh. Seuss invented the word nerd. Did you know that? Oh, that's a perfect Seuss word. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's just that's beautiful. In, the, yeah. in uh, If I Ran the Zoo, the narrator, Gerald McGrew, claims he would collect a Nurkle, a nerd, and a seersucker, too. <laughs> so there you go. I, I confess to really being enamored of Dr. Seuss when I was and that, that age. And that makes us nerds. <laughs> those, those wacky machines. Oh, I just yeah. loved those oh, bizarre yeah. Seuss machines. Oh, yeah. absolutely. They were neat. So, well, so a little more than we ever cared to know about uh, nerds versus geese. As long as we're talking about it, I suppose I could do the nerds... Uh, Commercial now. Now is a perfect time. And this was not a planned segue, folks, but here goes Leo. <laughs> Nerds on Site, of course, is a longtime sponsor of the show. And they're at the website, I want to be a nerd.com. I think when they use the word nerd, and they want, I think they wanted to distinguish it from uh, the use of geek by other companies in the same vein. It's not the I same thing, though. Probably why they had to deliberately choose yeah. you know, that word. They've yeah. been around for a long time. But <clears throat> Nerds on site uh, is a difficult concept to grasp, but I think you'll get the idea. If you're already in one of the IT professions, whether you uh, are a PC or Mac expert or you're a specialist at Cisco or Oracle or maybe you're a fix-it technician, an IT guy, website designer, programmer, project manager... Even if you're in sales, IT sales, or a trainer, or a security expert, of course, an antivirus guru, if you're that kind of person, the kind of person who troubleshoots and tears apart and rebuilds their own systems in the spare time, or as you, we've got a few nerds out there rebuilding the highway in front of my office, you hear them? I hear, I hear a truck in, in reverse at the moment. That's a, yeah, that, that's, the, that's the bulldozer nerd at work. Uh, the point is that you're an independent contractor, so... But but the, what Nerds on Site does is they help you get the job done, the business done. They do the stuff you don't want to do. You're still in business for yourself, but you're just not by yourself. You focus on your passion, not the burdens of running a business. And I tell you, people who I've talked to many nerds now, uh, parts of the Nerds on Site group, and they love what Nerds on Site does for them. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, expanding worldwide. There are uh, there's a University of Nerdology, so you can polish your skills. Over 250 core competencies from systems architecture to design to software development, even 
full on-site IT departments to desktop support and Soho residential IT services. So you can learn, develop your business. They help you. They have great software to help you get the job done. You make more money and you do more of what you love. Find out more about it by going to IWantToBeANerd.com. You can sign up for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. And, of course, part of the deal is you get to drive the bright red, red Nerdmobile. <laughs> They, they love, I love those. They love their nerd movie. It's so cute. I, I told you I had an escort by four nerds in Vancouver, and it was the funnest thing. I Oh, it was so cool to pull up to the hotel and four bright red Volkswagen Beetles. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> they thought, it's not a rock star. It must be a geek star, a nerd star. I want to be a nerd. Dot com. We thank them for their support of security now. So uh, do you have any arenda, arenda or a data? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, got, we have a few things before I get into, into specific mailbag issues because okay. this is our mailbag w- w- with our modified formula. This is the, this episode has survived as our mailbag episode. I first of all, we got the, a, a ton of this is about captures that is about our prior week's episode 101 because the response was just fantastic. But not only because of the the fun stuff we had talking about captures, but also my own personal discovery uh, in many cases, uh, I don't know, I guess a few people knew about it um, among our listeners, but of that PayPal security key, um, I got a ton of responses from people who noticed that during the, during our recording, Leo, we couldn't find the location of the key. And I actually think it was on your front page, but it wasn't on mine. That was the problem. Right. And and so on the show notes, my show notes of 101, uh, and I moved it also in, into this week's show notes, up at the very top of the page is a link directly there, or it turns out it's just um, paypal.com slash security key. Well, that's easy. So that <laughs> will take, that'll do it. Yes. That will take you directly to that page. Um and uh, so I wanted to make sure people knew where it was because there were a lot of people who, in fact, some thought that, that maybe we had slashed dotted them, which right. is, of course, the, the industry term for drawing so much attention that they ran out of keys because many people reported – actually, I think it was only our Canadian listeners reported that PayPal was saying that the key was, was not currently available, I think was the exact language – and so they thought, well, what did they run out after Steve and Leo talked about the PayPal security key? But I believe it's just a Canadian exclusion um, for reasons that are not immediately clear. So although I do have some mailbag uh, comments about that. Okay. So I wanted to clarify that. Also, I had one one really fun uh, little spin right story, but it's it's so horrendous in one particular way that I felt I had to compensate with a second little quickie. So <laughs> one well, happy, you'll, one sad. You'll see what I mean. Well, they're both good news, but uh, well, anyway, so Michael Tan in Melbourne, uh, Australia, uh, I, and I, I, I put in here in parentheses has plenty of patience, which I added. He says, I run a small business in Australia fixing computers called the computer surgeons. And recently we had a customer who worked from home as an accountant who kept all his clients bookkeeping records on his PC. And of course, we already know where this is headed. His PC was at least seven years old and his hard drive had decided to cease working. He also had no backup from within the last six months. So I quickly hooked up the hard drive to another PC 
whipped out my copy of Spinrite, and hoped for the best. <laughs> he writes, <laughs> Why you laugh? <laughs> well, it was a long haul, but good things come to those who wait. Three months and six days later, I was able to recover all of his client's files and some files that he didn't even know were there. He now is recommending me to everyone he knows. He says, thanks, Steve. You and Spinrite made my customer's day. It has been one of the best investments I have made. Regards, Mick, the computer surgeon. <laughs> so that's I great. thought, okay, three months, that's a little extreme. But, you know, the guy apparently, I mean, who knows what happened to his hard drive, but it must have really been in serious shape. But on balance, Jeff Harrison in Kentucky wrote, I recently purchased Spinrite based on listening to it being discussed so much on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I support our office and mobile users in my job and recently had one of our laptop users have their drive completely fail. Of course, they did not have any backup of their data, even though we have provided instructions and even USB drives yeah. to help them do it. I decided this would be a good test for my new purchase since I haven't needed it yet. It ran for about 1.5 hours. That's not and bad. Was, uh, exactly. And was able to recover all but one of the files. And even then, I was able to get the backup file that that application creates. So they only lost about three days worth of data in this one particular file. Much better than losing everything. I was happy to know that Spinrite works as advertised and the user was happy to get their data back. I enjoy the podcast and look forward to it each week. Keep up the good work. Isn't that nice? So, now, where was the horrific story? No, it was the first one. The, the, oh. the first one ran. The things, this thing cranked for three months and six days. Oh, I missed that part. Three oh, yeah. months? Three months it took. Have you ever yes. heard of it going that long? I mean, the, the patience that person had. Yeah, well, and, and it, re it recovered the drive and he got everything back. So, you know, as I said, he must have done something horrendous to the drive because, you know, Spinrite just worked and worked and worked. I mustn't, I must have, my mind mustn't have accepted the three months. <laughs> it couldn't have been three months. It, I must have, I heard three days. You said three months, six days. That's unbelievable. What, yeah. What, what, he put it somewhere and just ignored it for three months? Wouldn't have you, it, wouldn't you have given up after a few weeks? Well, I guess he must. Well, you know, he's a computer guy. He, he he runs this computer surgeon's operation, and he said he took the drive and and stuck it on a PC. So wow. he boxes around, and he just and probably he was curious too to see what would happen. And wow. you know, so three months later, he calls the guy up and says, "Hey, I got all your files back, and some Un you didn't even know you had." Unbelievable. So uh, y you knew that it could run that long. Did you know that? Oh yeah, it'll run until it's done. What's the I mean, What's it, the longest you've ever heard? Yeah, that's pretty much up there. <laughs> Gotta be it. Yeah, I can't believe it. So, what's it doing so so for so long? It's. It, I mean, when Spinrite hits a a troubled sector, as I mentioned in last week's podcast, it will sit there and I mean, do everything it possibly can to recover the sector, and and that may that may take as many as it'll try up to two thousand times in the so-called dynastat mode, the dynamic statistics mode that, that Spinrite switches into. And, and the specification states that after a failed read, it is necessary to reset the whole hard drive ah, subsystem. Okay, and that could take a while. 
Oh, it does. And so it's one of the things that's really frustrating is that, you know, you really have to do a full reset to, in order to know that the next read could succeed. Right. I've been so tempted not to do that reset, but then I'm not sure that the drive would actually fully recover from the prior failure. So maybe I would never really be able to catch the sector. And my feeling is that, you know, I've got to follow the spec in this case. So, so it, it actually, it's not reading like boom, 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 2000 times it's reading. And that's going through a complete upheaval reset before I'm really able to conscientiously try again. So it does. I mean, it can run slowly in a, on a drive, which is really in trouble. Some people have asked, is there a way to speed that up? Like, in fact, I, I did read a piece of email um, since I mentioned this last week who said, boy, you know, I, I don't want to wait for 2,000 reads on a drive that is heavily damaged. I'd rather, like, is, there, is there a way to speed spin right up to get it past, like, a really bad part like that? And you can do a couple things. You can interrupt it at any time and then notice what percentage of the drive you completed. And that's accurate, by the way, to four significant digits. Um, and then move spin right manually past that spot. Or if you have something that you're, where you have an editable medium, meaning a floppy drive or a USB dongle that you're booting, you, spin right does accept a command line option. Um, you say spin right space, dynastat space, and then the percentage, the normal default percentage is 100. That is, you're running dynastat at 100%. But you could set it to 10, and it would only do 200 reads, or you could set it to 1, and it would only do 20 oh, read attempts. Okay. So you are able to sort of scale that um, up and down if, if you really want to. Three months? That's kind of unbelievable. Uh, patience. Uh, and one hour, that's a lot better. But, but it is usually somewhere in between those two times. Yeah, it's normally a few hours. Yeah, and I've, I've yeah. run it overnight many times. Yeah. That's fine. And that's, and that's pretty much typical. Yeah, well, as drives get bigger, right? So, so get a load of this. Yes. Bob, whose last name I have, but I didn't know that he want me to use it, so I'm, we're just calling him Bob, is in San Jose, and he works for PayPal. Oh. He says, thanks for the recent plug for the PayPal security key. I'm the product manager for the cool. program. Oh, that's great. I'll be happy to answer any follow-up questions you may have. Response to the program has been very positive. It recently came out of beta in June, although I think mine, I think when I got mine a couple weeks ago, it's still, I mean, I think it was in July and, or maybe it was at the very end of June. And I think it still said it was in beta. So, but anyway, he says it's out of, it's out of beta and we're planning marketing campaigns to let more users know about the program, which is a good thing because, you know, you were unable to find it, Leo, even when I told you where it was. And in fact, many people went on a hunt. I mean, I think our mention of this certainly gave PayPal a boost because it's such a cool thing and and it's $5 to have this really neat security dongle, but you really have to dig around. And I, so I want to acknowledge all the listeners we have who sent in detailed navigation instructions for how to find this page, which apparently you can also go directly to but just by doing paypal.com slash security key. Um, I, I wrote back to Bob and said, hey, um, the, the response has been fantastic from our own Security Now listeners, um, and I've invited him to jump onto the show maybe next week to spend, you know, five, 
10, 15 minutes with us talking about this and, and answering some, some further questions. Oh, so, yeah, I haven't gotten mine yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to using it. And it's a great uh, way to, it, for those who didn't hear the show, it's, but you can now get one of those security dongles that generates new pass keys every few seconds or a few minutes. I'm not sure how often it is. Every 30 seconds. 30 I seconds. And you add that to your PayPal password to give you double factor authentication. And really, I mean, that is a great idea. No one can hack your PayPal account at that point. Yeah, less, I just, less, less as a matter of fact, well, they're, they're unable to hack it from a, from a, from a position of from logging know, in. They can't hack your password. Let's put it that way. Exactly. There. I mean, even if you had a bad password, you know, you know, your last name or, or something right. really, really obvious, like password, right. your password could be password. Right. But the addition of six digits to the end of it, which is the way you log in. Oh, and by the way, I, I forgot that the other day and I logged in just as my with my normal password. And I and I. It well, what it did was it took me to a sc- to a separate screen because it knew that I had now authorized myself to re- to use and require the se- the PayPal security key, and so I got an intercept screen saying, "Please type in the the six digits ah, currently showing on good. your security dongle." So it's like, oh, good. If I don't, you can do it all in one phase. By adding those to the end of your password, but if you forget, then it'll just say, what's your current six digits? And, of course, if a bad guy ran across that, he'd think, oh, well, <laughs> I better go somewhere else because I'm, you know, I'm not going to guess some six-digit number that's changing every 30 seconds. Yeah, I can't, I'm so, looking forward to getting it. I, will give, I, I worry about what happens if I lose it or I don't have it with me, et cetera, et cetera, but better to have that security. It's funny, too, Leo, because that's, that's exactly – it's what I was feeling too when I authenticated myself and like committed to always having it because first it was just sort of a cool thing to have. And then I thought, okay, well, what's the point of having it unless I lock it into my PayPal account, which you're able to do separately from, from receiving it. And then I thought, okay, but if I do this, then I just can't use PayPal randomly wherever I am. Yes. And it's like, Yes, Steve. That's the point, Steve. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, yep. Yep. I guess I'll probably not keep it on my uh, keychain because that's too heavy. Uh, I already have like 83 things on my keychain, including some keys, actually. But Well, uh, and, and we're going to have some great mailbag comments oh, good. about All that, right. too. So. I won't say anything, then. Okay, so Phil Aylesworth in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, uh, says, Sorry about the email yesterday that apparently he sent me about the PayPal security key not being available. A Google search reveals that it is only available in the U.S., Germany, and Australia right now. He says, of course, I said he's he's in Windsor, Ontario. He says, I'm in Canada. I guess other countries don't need the extra security. And then he's got a frowny face There's here. probably, you know, this is encryption. This is probably some export restriction, I would guess. Yes, and I'm and and hopefully Bob, who's the product manager, will know. Ex- I'm sure he'll know exactly why. And he says it would have been nice if PayPal had told me why it was not available. And in fact, that would have been nice for hundreds of people who wrote to us, Leo, saying what happened. It says it's not currently available. Hmm. So hmm. yeah. So um, I hope I hope we'll get a definitive answer. I presume you're right, but you know, it's, if it's Germany and Australia, that seems. It seems strange that Canada would say no, or somebody would say no. It does seem odd. I don't know. That is odd, yeah. All right. We'll we'll, we'll get the whole scoop, and we'll let our listeners know. Jim Kramer, uh, who's a listener, says, I just wanted to let you know, I've also been 
I just want to let you know. Okay, so that's how he starts. Period. I've also been very interested. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, I've also been very interested in the how in the how the brain works and read Hawkins' book, Jeff Hawkins' book that we talked about on intelligence last week. As soon as it came out, I also bought the audio version. I agree, it's very well done. I've been actively looking for information about how the brain works and have found many good pieces of information none however are as good as the information from hawkins i recommend you check out the following videos after reading the book and then he has he provided three links which i followed and each is to a really interesting presentation very different from each other and about an hour long each so obviously I can't. I mean, these are links from from hell. I mean, these are not, these are not links I can even yeah. attempt to verbalize. So they, if for anyone who's interested, they are on the, my uh, episode notes page for this episode. One hundred and two are the the three links from Jim Cramer. Uh, one is on the Numenta site itself. I think the other two are Google videos, so anyone should be able to watch them, and uh, they're they're definitely interesting. Um, they'll make much more sense after you've got the introduction that Jeff provides in the book. But it is, you know, for somebody who's not interested in reading a book, or if you're curious about the the, the more of the content or what his whole uh, HTM, the hierarchical temporal memory architecture, is. The videos would be a quick way to dip in, and then you could decide, hey, you know, I really want to start at the beginning and, and, and read and understand this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, uh, when I talked to Donna Dubinsky, who's his partner at Numenta, uh, and my uh, Yale classmate um, about it, she mentioned there's a good white paper also on the Numenta site about what they're up to, their specific implementation here. So that's also another place to look. Oh, cool. Yeah. I will, I will see yeah. if I can find that and, she, and link she to She said, it. read that white paper before you interview Jeff. You'll have a, a very good idea of what we're up to. So, listener, Peter Lilly in Sydney, Australia, uh, he prefaced his note saying, is it safe to go without AV if you, quote, know what you're doing, unquote? And, of course, you know, I have sort of suggested that uh, a number of times over the last uh, year and a half, Leo, coming up on two years here. He says, I wanted to share an anecdote from a few weeks back as it relates to something that's come up on Security Now a few times. I've been working in enterprise software for some 15 years and consider myself pretty careful and conservative when it comes to security online. I'm the sort of person who checks certificates, never opens attachments I wasn't expecting, etc., because I don't like inviting unknown people to come play on my computer. So... Recently, I was looking for information about a new component for my home PC online using my wife's laptop. I visited the website of a large and reputable manufacturer, then clicked a link to get more info about a certain product. So, okay, so that took him to, he went from this large, reputable manufacturer to a, a specific product's website. Immediately, Avast alerted me to a virus on the laptop. I hadn't downloaded any file, followed any external link, or clicked yes on any dialog. I simply viewed the page. At first, I didn't think much of it and assumed the issue was with the PC and not the site. I simply invoked my usual remedy of rolling the PC back to a disk image that I knew was okay, ran a virus scan, and all was good. While all that was happening, I broke out my work laptop to continue my surfing. I visited the same site 
And immediately Symantec huh. corporate edition huh. reported the same virus now on my work machine. Wow. I don't remember exactly which virus it was, but my investigation into the virus indicated that it was some unpleasant file infection. The infected file was in my internet cache in both cases, meaning the actual file on the web server was infected, and I was downloading that file simply by looking at the page. A moment of panic ensued. I do not run any AV at all on my primary machine, as I, like you and Leo, believe my safe practices should be the best protection. It seemed likely that I might have visited that manufacturer's website from that machine at some point, so I ran a scan via the network and... Yep, that machine had been infected as well. Now I have no idea how long that machine had been infected or how much time would have passed before I discovered it had I'm sorry, before I discovered it had I not happened to be using my wife's laptop that particular afternoon. I now run AV on all machines, parens, by the way I discovered NOD32 NOD32, which is apparently written mostly in assembly and feels very light. And, of course, that's one of our favorites, Leo. Um, As I no longer believe that simply being mindful and playing safe is enough. I guess the lesson here is even sticking to the reputable places on the web and being mindful of the dangers is quite... uh, I think he missed a negative. He says, I guess the lesson here is that even sticking to the reputable places on the web and being mindful of the dangers is not quite enough. Well, of course, in order for something like that to happen, you have to have uh, a hole in your operating system, right? Well, yes. Um, what it probably means, given that... Well, he, of course, now, if, if they're an infected image... That's what I was going to say. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. I mean, and, and you're right. It would be it would be an image which is exploiting. And of course, there have been there have been image based exploits before. I think there was a JPEG parsing error in yeah, Windows. The problem in is, G- it's not just Windows. It was in the Windows uh, the uh, uh, Visual Studio library file. So it extends yes, to I many. I think it was the apps. GDI Plus right. file, if right. I remember. And you're right. So just in that case, just viewing. That image, which, of course, any browser will do. I mean, most users certainly do surf with images enabled, even if they've got, you know, flash disabled and scripting disabled and everything else that generally you're, you're going to be surfing with images. And and so you're right. Only it would only be a problem if that was a known if it was an unknown exploit that was or unknown vulnerability that was being exploited um, or if you had not patched your machine and then your browser displayed that. So, you know, I mean, he makes a good point. And I, I, that's why I took the time to read that his rather long note is, you know, going through his anecdotal report. You know, here's an instance where all of his machines had a bad image on them. On the other hand, I would imagine that if you and I were to scan our machines, and I don't often enough, um, maybe we'd find something. Well, you know, but, the, some, but there's a difference between a bad image in your cache and actually a virus infection. In other words, that image by itself isn't going to do anything. It needs to use, it needs to uh, inject some software in there. And that's my question. He may have found that image, but well, presume, if it infected a system, there'd be a Trojan there as well. The image it's by itself is not is not the problem. 
but displaying the image would have been right. the the vector and so presumably when he went to this manufacturer's website he no i understand that you know, but what he's fa- but what he's found with his it's according to what he describes what he's found is a is a, a de- deadly image in his cache that by itself is harmless it's yes given that his system is patched and the image was not displayed right well even if it was displayed if if the hole was patched which it may or may not have been it would be harmless and what yes. i'm saying is if his antivirus only found that image there's two two possibilities. One, he didn't get infected. I see. I see. Or right. the other, he did fun- get infected and it didn't detect it. Yes, I exactly see what you mean. So, so it wasn't also finding a Trojan that the image was the entrance vector for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I and that's agree. that's kind of one of the reasons that I am so emphatic on emphasizing um, behavior as opposed to antiviruses because the antiviruses may have missed the Trojan, frankly. And behavior always protects you. Now, as long as, as, long yeah. as you don't misbehave. Yeah, <laughs> right. Good behavior protects. You know, this has happened to Tom's uh, uh, hardware site, which is a very reputable site. This has happened on MySpace, partly because these sites accept ads unverified yes. from ad services. Oh, um, very good point. That's a- the vector a- anytime, on these. Yes, any good, and, and anytime your server has links to off-site images, you're trusting that the right. image you're sucking in is going to be okay. And so that's what happened to MySpace, and uh, they were using a service that wasn't valid, you know, that allowed anybody to buy an ad. The oh, uh, advertiser provided the image, and of course it was infected. They estimate in that case that a, a, a million people got infected. Uh, yeah. And uh, the Tom's hardware, which is more recent, uh, hundreds of thousands, they they guess, because it was there a day or so. Wow. So, yeah, it, that just points out that you can even go to a reliable, a presumably reliable site and have this happen to you. I don't know what the right answer is, frankly. You know, and it's interesting, too, because the nature of the way this is being done, that is, the, the web page you're visiting never sees that image. The server never sees it. It's it, the, the page contains a reference to the advertiser supplier. So, for example, it's not possible for Tom's Hardware to somehow proactively take responsibility. In order to do that, his server would have to be accessing... Exactly. His server would have to be serving the image and doing a virus scan of the image itself prior to offering it, which is typically not the way this is done. Instead, his pages simply have links to that third-party server, and the user's browser goes and does the fetch of the image. So it's it's really a difficult thing for the hosting website to take responsibility for the image content, even if it really wanted to. And that's why this JPEG hole is such a significant hole, because it, it you can patch Windows and still be vulnerable. Um, and it's hard to know what applications you're using have used that library uh, with a flaw in it. So it's a it's just a mess. It's just yeah. a mess. I don't I don't I, I don't know what the right answer is there because behavior may not protect you and an antivirus may or may not protect you. I well, certainly don't say don't have an antivirus. What I say is don't consider your first line of defense, but it's a great idea to scan periodically. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, we have a listener, Nils Anderson. Uh, who who commented in in our last episode, Security Now 101, we mentioned the PayPal version of the RSA Secure ID. He says, I have a Secure ID from E-Trade, and it seems to me one Secure ID should be usable on multiple sites. I ordered the PayPal key, but I can envision a future where I'll have a pocket full of dongles. That's an interesting 
title for <laughs> a song. I've got a pocket full of dongles. <laughs> a pocket full of dongles and have to hunt for the right yeah. one. Oh, he is a, inf- now he's a geek. Yep, that's a geek. Yep. <laughs> he says, got any information on sharing one dongle between sites? And that's a great, that would be a great question if we can get the uh, PayPal product manager on because several people mentioned this. It's like, hey, you know, yeah, I'd love to have a dongle, but I'd only like to have one. Thank you very much. But wouldn't that compromise your security because it'd be a shared password among multiple vendors? Right. Yes, and the, well, and so, in fact, this really harkens back to our recently discussed Open ID. What you'd like to have is everybody using a ah, common repository, ah. you know, an Open ID, and then you use your single dongle with Open ID to authenticate yourself to everybody else. Ah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So Bill Holton says his subject line was, "I'm still human." And he says, I just, I just listened to your podcast. Actually, I, I really liked his, uh, his little blurb here. He says, I just listened to your podcast about CAPTCHA. And it occurs to me there's a bit of confusion when people refer to CAPTCHA as a Turing test. My understanding is that a Turing test puts a human, in, a human judge in one place. And he attempts to see if, this, if the judge can tell the difference between a computer in one room and a human in a different room. Yep. CAPTCHA seems to turn this on its head and puts the computer as the judge and asks it if it can tell the difference between a human and another computer. If we had the resources to put humans back into those rooms, I don't think authentication would be a problem. But so long as there's the possibility that my computer is smarter than your computer, which I, I, I love that, that phrasing. He says, there's, there's, always going to be, um, there's always going to be some way my smarter computer can trick your less smart computer into believing it's human. Or has this all just been some computer-generated response, he says, meaning to say he's right. still human. Right. Uh, so it and isn't just, technically a Turing I, test. He's right. Yeah, I, I really I thought that was kind of clever that, you know, he, he's, he's correct in saying that we're replacing the human judge with a computer judge. And of course, that's the that's the capture server, which is trying to make the decision between human and computer. And basically, you just need, you know, if you have a smarter computer, which, again, is what we're talking about when we talk about all this work being done to being done being done dung. to <laughs> dung, to <laughs> ding ding to crack the capture. Um, you know, that, that's, that's exactly the case. So I thought that was sort of a neat way to look at that. Now, we've got a long posting, but I thought an important one, from Daryl Shandro, who calls himself an accessibility evangelist. And it's actually, Leo, somebody you've spoken with, as, as you'll see. Yes. He says, thanks for your Security Now episode 101 discussing CAPTCHA and multi-factor authentication. I appreciate your talking about the needs of people with disabilities, specifically those of us who are blind or visually impaired. CAPTCHAs and multi-factor authentication schemes that provide their output in only a visual format represent a clear and present danger to the blind, deafblind, and visually impaired. Each time a CAPTCHA or multi-factor authentication system fails to accommodate our needs, it results in our inability to participate. At a minimum, this means a blind person can't sign up for an account on a website. 
On the other hand, it sometimes means we may be unable to make a purchase or even access the money in our own checking accounts. Back in the 60s, here in the United States, we decided that it was wrong to segregate African Americans from the rest of the population. For more than 40 years, it's been illegal to deny service to African Americans in restaurants, schools, and other public accommodations based solely on skin color. Similar protections are now in place to prevent discrimination against gender, race, religious preference, sexual orientation, etc. We even have the ADA and other laws to protect those of us with disabilities, though their effectiveness is a controversial issue for quite another, for quite another forum. He says, many of us feel strongly that the way in which visual-only captures and multi-factor, authentic- multifactor authentication systems discriminate against us when no alternatives are provided to reasonably accommodate our needs for access is tantamount to the same type of segregation experienced in the past by African Americans. Since visual-only only capture presents a clear and present danger to the blind and visually impaired, And since it is often used to protect resources we need or want to utilize, we are absolutely insistent that every CAPTCHA and multi-factor authentication scheme reasonably accommodate our needs for accessibility. It's interesting. I'm going to interrupt here for a second, Leo, because I hadn't considered the fact, but it's certainly true that the PayPal dongles and the secure IDs that prevent a visual-only token are inherently discriminatory in that sense i mean there there isn't and you know they don't have a little audible speaker on the back of them for example that will speak out right. what the code is they're they're currently showing yeah i think it's really so, important to be sensitive to this um and i think what is the ada requires in many cases is at least some form of access it may not be the same one so for instance paypal is not uh forcing you to use a dongle so they're not discriminating against uh, people who can't see exactly, but I can see that perhaps your uh, as a, as an example, uh, there there may be some sites that require uh, this visual dongle, and and the uh, you know, I you know with the capture that I use has visual and audio, but uh, he brings up the deaf blind and 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 uh, or deaf blind people, and I I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, I'm, um, well, I, 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 <laughs> I'm, I think- I'm baffled by at that point. I don't know what I do. was thinking about it also last week. And, and I, it seemed to me that as long as you have some accessible fallback, that is, you know, if, for example, if you if you could use neither the CAPTCHA nor the audio version, then, you know, allow them to do an email loop or or, you know, some l- less technical solution that has inherently lower bandwidth, but where at least they're going to be able to, you know, to, to, to do what they want. I mean, if, for example, if, my, if GRC's e-commerce system were protected by any captures, which it's not at the moment because it doesn't need it. It's got all the, you know, e-commerce authentication there. Um, you know, I would certainly not want to lose sales to people who were, were, you know, being stopped by some sort of, of capture system. So I, I really can't understand um, he says, at this point, the state-of-the-art method for, of providing reasonable accommodations to CAPTCHA is, as you two, that is, as the two of us mentioned on the show, an audio CAPTCHA. Over the past year, there's been an explosion of commercial and free products and services offering audio as well as visual CAPTCHA. And some manufacturers of multi-factor authentication schemes are now getting to the point they must become accessible. 
At this stage, I believe it is inexcusable for there to exist any capture without at least an audio equivalent attempt to reasonably accommodate the needs of the blind and visually impaired. And, and I might parenthetically say, or some solution that would allow them to, to still use the site. Companies like AOL, Google, and Microsoft now provide this accommodation. And some of us in the blind community are working tireless, tirelessly to insist that others do likewise. Aside from the privacy issue, which I don't buy, since sighted people can also use the audio capture, and that's the point that I had made last week, the real problem with both audio and visual capture and multi-factor authentication is that it does not meet the needs of the deafblind. Ultimately, we need precise laws and regulations requiring accessibility combined with significantly more research and development to devise non-sensory schemes that can reliably tell computers and humans apart while recognizing everyone's humanity and discriminating against no one. Then he says, Leo, in November of 05, you interviewed me live on Twit at the Portable Media and Podcasting Expo. I remember that. Yep. To discuss accessibility in general and CAPTCHA in particular. You seem to really understand the issue and get the reasons for the need to accommodate the blind and visually impaired. I believe my appearance on your show, along with your linking to Blind Access Journal, helped to further spread the good word about accessibility. Thank you for making that happen. In January 2006, I initiated a petition asking Google to make an audio equivalent of their visual word verification scheme available to reasonably accommodate the needs of the blind and visually impaired. It was completely rolled out to all Google services by May of 06. Earlier this month, a blind man from Brazil started an online petition asking Yahoo to make an audio version of their CAPTCHA available. While Yahoo does provide a form one may fill out to receive a callback, this promise is almost never fulfilled by the company's personnel, and most requests for help made by blind users of Yahoo services have gone completely unanswered. I am taking the lead in promotion in promoting this new petition and, of course, ultimately insisting that Yahoo simply do the right thing by providing an audio captcha. The petition is available at http colon slash slash blindwebaccess.com. That is B-L-I-N-D-W-E-B-A-C-C-E-S-S dot com. Stephen Leo, I would ask that you mention this initiative Place your signatures on this petition. Utilize your vast influence in the technology industry to convince Yahoo to do the right thing and that you link to both blindwebaccess.com and blindaccessjournal.com to help us attain more petition signatures and further spread the good message of equal access to technology for everyone, regardless of visual acuity. I thank both of you for your time and anticipate your responses. Keep up the great show. Sincerely, Daryl Shandro. I think most of the time Yahoo does not have a capture. So I'm trying to think of where uh I guess maybe it has a capture sometimes. I'm not sure. Probably on subscribing for an email account yeah. for to to prevent you from oh, getting Oh, maybe it does to uh, automating that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, in fact I think we talked about Once that last. Once you have an week. account it doesn't require it, but I see as a signing up it would. In fact, let me just check that out of curiosity. Yeah, it does. And it doesn't uh let's see more info. It doesn't seem to have a audio version, yeah. They really, it's surprising, frankly. It's, it, I wish more people would just use the CMU uh, recapture, which has audio, and, and also has this additional uh, feature, as you mentioned, of, of typing, in, typing in books. 
Well, Ed, yes, and in fact, the the remember too that the benefit of that is by having everyone using a centralized source. What it essentially means is that um, if bots become good at this, and in fact, it's one of the things that the servers are monitoring. The recapture servers servers are monitoring the access patterns to detect oh. whether it's being cracked. And the beauty is that they'll be able to respond immediately and everyone using their system immediately gets the distributed benefit of not not only feeding information in about about any hacking attacks but getting any benefits of upgrades to the system as any are needed right so i mean it, it i mean i will absolutely if at some point i do something where i need to have that kind of protection i will i will use recapture and have some sort of you know, automated, you know, second-level authentication for people who, who are able to use neither. What happens I, with I, psyches? I, really, I mean, psyches are very visual. Uh, does that... Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Huh. All right. Anyway, uh, thanks for writing. I think it's a great, great, good points, and we all need to be aware of accessibility. And uh, frankly, I'm, I fall down on this frequently. Our website is not nearly as accessible as I'd like. Uh, Matthew Middleton is a listener who just signed up for his first PayPal account, thanks to us. He says, hello, Stephen Leo. Just wanted to let you know that after Security Now 101, I, that's a, that was a sort of a fun numbering coincidence, Security Now 101, yeah. uh, I am ready to take the plunge into online shopping. Up to this point in time, I had never purchased anything online from a place that didn't take checks that I could send them because I've heard so many horror stories from people losing money through online purchases. To give you some background on myself, I'm a 22-year-old software developer who spends a good deal of time listening to tech podcasts, parens, most from the Twit network. So I do have a good grasp on how online security works, or more appropriately, is supposed to work, as very few sites really provide the security that is needed. So my fear of online shopping is based more on knowledge than ignorance. This, however, all changed. When I heard that PayPal now offers security keys you can purchase. As soon as I listened to SN101, I jumped on PayPal and set up my account, ordered the key, and I'm now waiting for it in order to make my first online purchase. I'd like to thank you and Leo for all the information that you provided on Security Now. It has helped a lot. Not only do I know that PayPal offers security keys, but I also know why that is important. That's neat. And you know, uh, I get a lot of email from people who say I can't contribute to uh, Twit because I don't have a PayPal account. And I never will, and right. uh, you know, and, uh, I, I suppose I should look into other uh, payment systems. It's just so easy to use PayPal. And frankly, if you don't want to donate or you can't donate because of the, you're uncomfortable with PayPal, that's fine. I understand. Only yeah. about only about two or three percent of the listeners donate anyway. It's not gonna. It's it, I don't I don't expect or hope for even anywhere near a hundred percent participation. So. Um, but if, I don't know, I, I've looked at other systems and I just, I can't find one that works as easily. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, a listener, Robert Gauld in Aberdeen, the, in the UK says, like you guys, I have a lot of problems with the visual captures mm. to the extent that I take my browsing elsewhere. Wow. If I'm presented with one. Wow. Take that, you nasty ah. cat. <laughs> he says, what I'm wondering is why they don't just present the user with three pictures of things. For example, cat, dog, house, post office box, boy, girl, bird, dot, dot, dot. And a selection of drop-down boxes to choose what each picture is showing. That's a great idea because a computer would have a terrible time with that. 
Well, except that the problem is um, if the choices are limited, then the computer could be programmed to to you know to recognize right, each one right and so it ends up being trivial actually if you're shown you know the same dog is showing all the time or the same house or the same you know post office box or boy or girl you know all you have to do is 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 not even image recognition you just you know do a a, a, a crc or a hash of the gif or the jpeg which is you know being repeatedly shown a human goes through each of them one time matching up that this crc or this or this hash is this answer to the question and then wham you've got it cracked you have an evil mind well <laughs> believe me the hackers do too oh so. i know you need to yeah. you know i uh, recently I, I wish i could remember and I, I can't remember who it was but i recently ran into a captcha that um did an interesting twist on this, but I think you're right. This might have had the same problem. Uh, instead of showing you a capture, they showed you um, a four images, and then below it had a key. Now, the images change. I've done it a couple of times, and so there's always different. But they had a key, you know, castle equals one, star equals two, and then you were to enter a number based on taking those images, figuring out the key, and entering the number. It took some time, but it was a little more legible than a captcha. And I presume they're changing the numbers randomly. So that it wouldn't have the same issue that problem with yours. And were the numbers in images also? No. Okay. See, the problem is then the the bot could read the text. Oh yeah. And, and see what the associations oh, yeah, were, and, right. and again it would have it cracked. Oh, so yeah, you're right. Never mind. It, it, I mean, as we concluded last week, it is surprisingly hard. Yeah, surprisingly hard to tell yeah. a computer yeah. from a person yeah. these Isn't days. Funny. Yeah. Wow. Um, Chris Ackerman. Uh, is an IT manager in Plymouth, Minnesota, uh, has an update and thoughts about AVG. He says, I use AVG 7.5 Network Edition as my corporate AV solution. With 300-plus users, the other antivirus, Perens, Symantec, McAfee, etc., have become absolute resource pigs, and the cost has become prohibitive. That's true. I switched from Symantec last year and find AVG to be much better, he says in all caps. You sounded kind of upset with AVG for returning a false positive on securable.exe. AVG immediately removed it from the DEFS file. Oh, good. I had Securable on my machine and was getting... A, a positive hit for it. It was showing it. it, it AVG was showing it as infected with the SHEUR.APY Trojan. Anyway, AVG is no longer showing your program as a threat. I'm not sure we would have received such a quick response for removal from, and he says crappy here, uh, Symantec <laughs> or McAfee. That might so, be true too. You're right. And he says, he says, go easy on AVG. They are the best thing going these days in the AV world. So if I if I sounded upset, I apologize. I certainly meant nothing against AVG because, you know, these false positives occur from time to time from everybody. I certainly do appreciate knowing, and believe me, Greg, my tech support guy, will really appreciate knowing that AVG updated their patterns and uh, people aren't going to be worried that Securable's got something bad going on. Now, you make sure you update your virus, your antivirus. Yep. <laughs> uh, oh, and we had another person um, uh, whose name I'm going to pronounce Poojan Wah. 
uh, of Chicago, Illinois. He says, I heard you discuss on SN101 that PayPal has security ID dongles available. I wanted to let you know, you and your listeners know, that E-Trade has offered RSA secure ID to their oh. banking customers for quite a while now. Much I better than a site key. Let's all do this. Yep. He says, I estimate a couple of years. And then he says, what would be great is if RSA slash PayPal slash E-Trade would allow you to register a single dongle with multiple accounts. See, that's the problem, because I, I don't want to have 10 of these. Exactly. And he says, I mean, who wants to have both a PayPal dongle and an E-Trade dongle on their keychain? A legitimate thing. But on the other hand, it compromises the security if it's the same number for multiple sites. Yep. Now, the only thing you could do, um, and there are some, there are some, um, some RSA secure ID tokens with this, and that is, uh, they're like a credit card with an LCD display, and they have a keypad on them. And the advantage there would be that you could do a challenge response, ah. so that when you are wanting to authenticate yourself, you would receive from them a you know, something to type in that would get mixed in cryptographically with what they know about your card and right. produce a result. And so that would, that would help to back off on that problem somewhat. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Let's see. We've got, uh, oh, this is funny. The, a real quickie. Simon in Exeter the, in the UK, uh, his subject was funny error. And he said, Steve was joking that they could clone you and get your fingerprint. But clones and identical twins have different fingerprints. Oh, I didn't know that. You would think That's, they'd have the same one. Uh, I, I, I filed that under good to know. That, <laughs> uh, know. Well, Interesting. <laughs> if, we get, if we get to the point where we're cloning people, uh, you know, you'll have different fingerprints. So your fingerprint is not uh, nature, it's nurture. Uh, or something, or a combination of thereof. It's certainly not a pattern of cuts that I received on my finger as a right. child. I, I don't, I don't know, but I'm. I guess you know Simon was so definitive. I'm going to take his. No, words. I think I'd heard that about. Uh, well, I know that twins don't have the same fingerprints, so that's where that would come from. Because twins are genetically identi identical. Twins uh, okay. are genetically identical. And and we we of course know that clones are by definition. So twins, they're twins. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Um, Dan in Oregon has provided us with some feedback. He's a an, an avid Tor user. We will remember that Tor is an acronym, T-O-R, that stands for the Onion Router, um, which is a very powerful anonymizing technology that where your traffic bounces through a series of publicly available Onion Routers and that the technology is extremely neat um, and they then and, and well implemented for preventing anyone from being able to backtrack those links in, in any feasible fashion. So he says, hello, Leo and Steve. I've been listening to you talk about IP spoofing on security now and have been a user of Tor, the onion router, for several years. And my IP address when using Tor shows up as the IP of my exit point from the routed network. Which right. of course that it, makes it sense. would, yeah, because because that that that's basically his public IP. That right. is the the IP of that router. He says with proper configuration, you could choose to always use the same exit point and have a consistent IP that is not mine or even geographically close to me. Your choices of IP addresses is limited, of course, to Torified systems that have a policy to allow them as an exit point from the network. I have verified this on GRC.com, 
and you cannot detect my true IP address when I am torrified. Okay. So that's, that's very cool. Wow. All right. Um, Steve Heiner in Phoenix, Arizona, still doesn't like biometrics. He says, in episode 100, I think you missed the point on one of the questions. One of the questions was about the security of fingerprints and retina scans and whether or not we want something that permanent as a digital ID. You came to the conclusion that it was okay because they will only stare I'm sorry, they will only store a hash of the data so our fingerprint or retina can't be reconstructed if a bad guy got to the data. I don't think that's what the listener was concerned about. I think his concern is that if the bad guy got that close to the data, he could switch his hash code with mine or duplicate his hash, his hash code into my records. This could have two very bad results. First, as far as the criminal database is concerned, I have become him and could get arrested for his crimes. As far as the bank is concerned, he has full access to my accounts since they will think the biometric information cannot be duplicated. It would be the ultimate identity theft. It's already tough enough to convince a bank that you didn't make a purchase without them having proof that it was you because of more robust biometric data match. What is a bank or police officer supposed to believe? That you faked your driver's license or that you faked your iris? I think you'd have a tough time... (laughs) I tough time my proving <laughs> I faked my iris. I think you have a t- tough time proving that your iris has been hijacked. I think you're right. Okay, well, first of all, um, what you would do if the, if it came to it would be you would rescan your iris, yeah. which would then be rehashed, and you could then affirmatively prove that your hash was not the one in your file and that someone had changed it. So, in fact, in this example, it actually gives you proof of identity theft rather than having less strong proof. Right. And, again, the, the, the power is that, that this hash, it, it is non, it's a non-reversible, lossy process. And you always keep your own iris, so you're always able to reaffirm what your hashed value is in any given situation. So... Anyway, I thought I thought he had an interesting point, but uh, we we still are protected. And in fact, in those examples, we end up being able to more affirmatively demonstrate that you know to the cops that somebody else went to the trouble of pretending to be us, because so there, you know yeah. Our, yeah, they didn't they don't actually have our iris. We can always reassert ownership of our own iris. Does your iris change over time? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I hope not. Because then it would be a bad biometric. Well, it might change uh, a little. Let's see. I know uh, your fingerprint changes sometimes. You? Oh, I got a kick out of this one. Brian Hogg of Kitchener, Ontario, and Canada. And a good friend. He made a puppet of me, you know. Brian Hogg did? Yeah. Oh, well, you have, wait a minute. For what purpose? There, there is the, <laughs> There's that problem with my voodoo, perfect, It's got my perfect iris. No, he, uh, Brian is the um, creator of the incredible uh, Dot Boom podcast it's a video podcast with puppets and uh there's a leo puppet jumping around some video podcast next time you're up in vancouver brian sent it to me i will show you 
Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm in a podcast along with Kevin. There's a Kevin Rose and an Alex Albert uh, uh, puppet, and I think an Amber MacArthur puppet. Oh, my is, goodness. Is due for their season finale. I hope I stay off his radar. <laughs> Brian, uh, we want a Gibson puppet. <laughs> you're, you're in trouble, Steve. No, you'll That's love it. You'll, you're just like a Muppet. It's very cute. Okay. So, okay. Anyway, he says, excellent show on captures. I was just leafing through my spam folder, and I noticed one about Cialis. We won't wonder why he chose to open that particular one. I get them but, all the time. But he says, it was just an email with product shot photos. I noticed that the image itself had all sorts of visual distortion on it. It looked like the image had been sprinkled by confetti. Would this be the spammers attempting to subvert detection? Oh, interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Basically, perhaps by using the same method as captures. And I thought, yeah, of course. I mean, that makes, I mean, I don't know that, but I mean, I think his, his guess is exactly right. And it's very cool. So the spammers are do are doing image degradation because certainly anti-spam filters would lock on to the photo uh, you know a non-degraded photo just like we were talking about before and and do a checksum of it and say hey any email containing a, an image that that matches this checksum is absolutely spam so there these guys are obviously you know, throw in some confetti noise in the image in order to prevent it from being captured. So, or, or captured, uh, which, I thought kind of, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. No, I, 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 they do all sorts of, they, you know, if you want to know where the cutting edge is on this stuff, look at the spam. Yes. These guys, yes. I mean, there's, yes. because they have a lot of incentive in keeping one step ahead of whatever the filters. <laughs> Justin in San Antonio, Texas says, I think it would be great if you guys did a segment on digital signature slash electronic signature technology, going paperless and addressing the approval process for security requests is something that would be of great interest to myself and other information security administrators. Hmm. Well, I wanted just to address the fact that we really did, Justin, uh, we did justice, Justin, to... (laughs) to electronic digital signatures back in our security series earlier on in Security Now. So by all means, go back and take a look at at hashing and crypto stuff. You might might want to look, though. I mean, we might want to update it because there are, for instance, Adobe Acrobat now has a signature model module in it for for legal document signatures. Ah, good. Mean like like legally binding document signatures. Well, I, it says so, and it's from Adobe, so I figure it's probably widely adopted. I don't know. Well, and and we well, I'm, but but I, I, I guess I mean cryptographically strong. Ah, um, well, yes. I presume that you know it's, you can't tell because of course Acrobat does all its encryption in, internally. Uh, right. Um, for what it's worth, I was going to follow up and, and explain to Justin very very quickly that the way this is done, and we really. Uh oh. Oh, that was somebody coming or going. Somebody's calling. I just lost you, Leo. No, um, the, the, uh, the way this is because because that, that that's my Skype sound. Right. The way this is done is that you would take the document and you would do a crypt. You would make a cryptographic hash of it, like an SHA one or some other strong crypto hash. Then you use your private key to encrypt the hash, and that is a digital signature. And the idea then is anyone who wants to prove that the document has not changed, they, they acquire your public key, that is the matching key to your, 
your your private asymmetric key. They they acquire your public key because only your public key can decrypt what your private key encrypted. So they decrypt the so-called signature and get the hash value. They then perform the matching hash function, and only if the document this whatever it is, Adobe Acrobat or or PDF or whatever electronic document, only if the hash exactly matches, then do you know that it hasn't been changed since it was signed and you also affirmatively know who signed it because only the person who signed it would have the matching public key that would successfully decrypt the hash. So... That's how signatures work. We should and we should at some point look at what Adobe's doing because this is this as far as I know this is new in eight. I hadn't seen it before, and it's clearly for uh, using Adobe Acrobat to distribute electronic documents where you certify the validity and then you can sign and certify changes. Cool. It looks like they're uh, they're either you could you can get a certificate from a third party or you can create your own certificate, which is kind of interesting. Um, you could certify the original document as, and then certify changes to the document. It actually has a signature, like a hand signature, but I guess it's attached probably to a digital signature as well. It's interesting what they're doing. I mean, clearly they're trying to set a standard of, of some kind for uh, commercial use of digital signatures. Right, right. And, and it's certainly possible for people to create a so-called self-signed certificate or or you know like your own your own certificate if you don't want to get one from a from a certificate authority the advantage of doing doing um the acquisition of a certificate from an authority is then that you're you're having to prove to them that you are who you say you are so they're representing that this is signed not just by somebody who claimed to be whoever they are but that the but the certificate authority is saying yes we verified through through some offline um process that this person really is who they are claiming to be but it's certainly not you don't need a certificate authority and so so that was what you were referring to leo the idea that you're able to create instantaneously create a, a certificate you you could certainly do that because lots of code is able to create a key pair, an asymmetric key pair, one which you would keep private and use for signing, the other which, which you would publish and use for, for verification. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got time for a couple more if you have a couple more to do. Um, yeah, we got uh, two more, as a matter of fact, that I had. We had actually 20. And wow. so we're at nine, number 19 is uh, Will Morantz of Wheatfield, Indiana says, I just listened to episode 100 and about the listener who asked about the security of allowing users to enter any email when asked for a new password because the users might have forgotten the password to the email they had used. Okay, what, what he's referring to, what was the question two episodes ago, remember that somebody wrote in asking if we felt it was insecure. I think he was with a large um, educational, an, an, an academic environment, a university, and both students and faculty were for, were forgetting their passwords, and then they were forgetting which email address of their you know m- many email addresses they used in order to perform the authentication loop. So the university had taken to allowing people to enter an email address 
to which the authentication would be sent along with, you know, some additional questions. And, and, the, and the guy was asking, you know, do you feel that's insecure? Anyway, so, so Will suggests, why don't they let the user verify multiple email accounts at a time, then give them a choice of those emails instead of using any? They would also need to give them a way to deauthorize email when the user no longer uses them for one reason or another. Of course, all of this would require that the user keep the email list up to date, but the people they're trying to cater to might not do this. Anyway, so I thought it was an interesting idea. His, his notion was instead of only having one email address which you register with, why not register all of them? Then when you need to, like, you know, you do your, I forgot my password, please send me an authentication uh, to my email address. Well, it would send them to all of them. So you don't have the problem of having to remember which one you, you register with. I thought, that, well, that's clever. And I don't really see that it significantly weakens the security. It could be a one-time process. As soon as any one of them is used, all the other ones become de-authenticated and, and cannot be used. So it's it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And finally, I... I last I, email. Yeah. I end this on a, a, a sort of an interesting, sort of bizarre catch-22. Uh, Eric Surratt of Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, shares this AT&T statement on NSA warrantless wiretapping. He's, and, and, and this is like uh, formally posted. The AT&T statement on the NSA issued... Uh, issued in San Antonio, Texas on June 27th, says, At AT&T, we vigorously protect our customers' privacy and only share information as specifically authorized by the law. The news media have carried reports alleging that AT&T is participating in an unlawful NSA terrorist surveillance program. Unfortunately, the law does not permit AT&T to respond to those allegations. The U.S. Department of Justice has stated that AT&T may neither confirm nor deny AT&T's participation in the alleged NSA program because doing so would cause, quote, exceptionally grave harm to national security, unquote, and would violate both civil and criminal statutes. Under these circumstances, AT&T is not able to respond to such allegations. What we can say is AT&T is fully committed to protecting our customers' privacy and would not provide customer information to any government agency except as specifically authorized under the law. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Oh, yes. We might be spying on you, but we can't tell you whether we are or not because doing, doing would be so would, would be bad, too. Yeah, so. yeah. Catch 22. So I would just say, assume they are. I think probably. Yeah. From that yeah. response, I think that's the assumption, right? I think probably, yeah. yes. Yeah. Not that that's a, a surprise either. Hey, I, I want to thank the folks at Astaro, because if you do have security problems, this is the solution. Astaro Security Gateway, a longtime sponsor of the show. In fact, our first sponsor still with us after more than a year. Astaro recently updated a version 7 and better and more amazing than ever. Now, there's two ways to enjoy the flavor of Astaro. <laughs> One is, of course, if you're in a business, you can get the Astaro Security Gateway, which is a small appliance with a lot packed with power. Best to breed open source and commercial software built in, covering every aspect of security. I mean, you get email security, things like anti-spam, anti-phishing, dual virus protection for email, transparent encryption at 
the gateway. So your users don't even have to know or worry about it, but it's done. Web filtering, too. You get content filtering. Uh, uh, antivirus for the web, looking for things like those embedded images. Anti-spyware. Instant messenger and peer-to-peer control. I mean, this is a rock-solid gateway to protect you from the outside world. And, of course, the traditional network protection, the firewall, the remote access, and VPN via SSL, now intrusion protection. You get the works. So if you want to take it, uh, check it out on your... Um, on your office system, you could do it for free by calling 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. That's 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. But you can also, if you're a non-commercial end user and you just want to try it, people often say, what would be the best way to protect my kids, you know, to keep control of what they do, to keep viruses out, get an old beige PC, you know, any old lying around the house box. Go to astaro.com slash security now. You can download the software. And by the way, they now throw in a license for the anti-spam, the subscriptions, the updates, the antivirus. Used to cost 79 euros a year. Now it's absolutely free. So this is a really good deal for end users as well. That's astaro.com slash security now. We really think they're a great company. And we're glad that uh, we can have them on security now. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Thanks for their support. Steve, you did it again. I mean, uh, this was a big 20-question mailbag and, and a lot of interest. Yeah, um, I just love our listeners. They, yeah. You know, we got smart people listening, and they're engaged and involved and, uh, and have some interesting things to talk about. Yeah, I think so. it's really good to give them that opportunity to uh, uh, get clarifications and so forth. So I'm glad we're yeah. doing that more often. Next week, you know what we're going to be doing, or will it be a surprise? It's going to be a surprise as much to me as it is to you, Leo. (laughs) But we know we'll be here. We know we'll have a great show for you, episode 103 next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure uh, you uh, check out uh, the uh, fine sponsors of this show and uh, and give them your support, because they give us their support, and they make security now possible. And don't forget, Steve's site is grc.com. That's where you can get your copies of all of his free programs, Securable. Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator. Of course, test your firewall with Shields Up and Leak Test. And uh, customize your shutdown with Wismo. All sorts of great stuff. That's all for free. And then his bread and butter, the great SpinWrite, uh, the ultimate disk maintenance and recovery utility. Even if it takes three months, six days, SpinWrite can do it. <laughs> right. You, you you use one of those old beige computers. Um, put it aside. Whatever. Put it in the closet. Let it go. <laughs> exactly. The good news is it's normally uh, a few hours. Yeah, that's, that is uh, definitely uh, right at the that, end of the scale on that one. Extreme. That's an outlier. Uh, also, by the way, at GRC.com, 16 kilobit versions of this for the bandwidth impaired and a great transcript thanks to our friend Elaine who writes this all up for us. Uh, we thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.